0: I said these answers were going to be incompatible. The first answer was all the different styles are because Nietzsche's out of control and he can't help it. And the other answer is, well, it's this exercise of imitating other genres that requires an enormous amount of control. How can those both be true?
1: Hello, thank you for joining me on Humanities Radio. I'm Janet Cunningham with the University of Utah College of Humanities. And this season, I'm in discussion with professors from across our college about their latest book publications. I'm with Elijah Milgram, dis- distinguished professor of philosophy to discuss his book, Why Didn't Nietzsche Get His Act Together, which argues for a new framework for making sense of Nietzsche that, trans- that transforms the way we read him. First of all, thank you for taking the time to chat with me, Professor Milgram.
0: Uh, Thanks for having me.
1: So I would like to just start off with you kind of providing us with an overview of your book and kind of what motivated you to explore this topic.
0: Um, Okay, so uh, um, um, I have the view that philosophers should engage themselves with the question of the meaning of life. Okay. And in my uh, in my world, I have to acknowledge that's a minority opinion. Okay. Um, and at some point, I found myself thinking that what a meaning for your life does for you, I mean, what use it is to you, mm-hmm. depends on how you're put together. If you wanted a fancy phrase for that, you could say on the architecture of your personality. Okay. And so I started looking around for, okay, I also think that if you're thinking about the meaning of life, you should do it by looking at actual lives. Okay. And, well, first I went, so uh, imagine you've got somebody who uh, is very, very tightly wired. He's all top down. Okay. Uh, He's the kind of person who makes decisions and long, you know, decisions with far-out horizons, and he executes them, come what may. Actually, Nietzsche has a phrase for people like that. He calls them sovereign individuals. Okay. Um, Well, you might think somebody like that, when he decides what his life is about, Mm -hmm. that's going to be, it functions to direct him, his actions, right? Um, And you would sort of expect that someone like this uh, the meaning of his life would turn out to be some very large project, smack in the middle of it. Okay. and I went looking around for someone like that, I found John Stuart Mill, he was the mm-hmm. the Victorian philosopher and also political activist okay. um, In his case, he really was tightly wired just this way. and the huge project was uh, utilitarianism, which at the time wasn't just an ethical theory but also uh, uh, a political project. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, okay, we need to find someone on the other extreme, someone who's really discombobulated, who doesn't make decisions and then execute them, who Mm -hmm. couldn't possibly do that. And I found Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's the level of discombobulation. Okay. Um, He's the kind of person who, when you ask, um, what does he really think? Mm -hmm. What does he really want? What does he what is he doing? There's no answer. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we actually do run into people like that in our day-to-day lives, but we don't really bother mostly, I think, trying to figure them out. Mm -hmm. We kind of shrug and we deal. Um, But Nietzsche is the he shows you that you can be like that, that okay. discombobulated, that much of, okay, I'll use the jargon phrase from my field, that much of a disunified agent Okay. Um, that there isn't an answer to what you think and still be really smart and really perceptive and really thoughtful and really intelligent. And also, but it's not a coincidence, really desperate. And okay. um, so I uh, started looking at Nietzsche. First is an object lesson. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what does Nietzsche didn't just figure out one meaning for his life. Mm-hmm. He went through a series of them. As he, uh, I'm sure many of our listeners know that Nietzsche was quite sick, and the sickness mm-hmm. had a psychiatric side to it. It was, mm-hmm. people argue about what it was, but now a lot of people think maybe it was a tumor in his brain. Okay. Um, at each lower plateau, right, he comes up with a different meaning for his life as a way of life management. Right it's self-help. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an object lesson for uh, what uh, what a meaning for your life can do for you if mm-hmm. you're that uh, fragmented, that discombobulated. Mm-hmm. but also it turned into uh, an exercise in trying to understand and make sense of somebody like this mm-hmm. And that has two sides to it. Um, uh, for the philosophers, we don't really know how to do that, When, when, if you read a, uh, a book by a philosopher mm-hmm. describing uh, uh, the opinions of some uh, dead famous figure, right? Okay. Normally it's, they'll tell you what he thought. Mm-hmm. They'll give you his arguments. They'll give you his theories. Um, they don't know how to read somebody who's so all over the place he doesn't have mm-hmm. properly theories that he owns. and. Um, and it's not just a problem for the philosophers, mm-hmm. Um, people who are interested in Nietzsche, they mostly don't know how to read someone like this. Right. Um, normally, what you see, and it's not just non-academics, but people mm-hmm. who count themselves as Nietzsche scholars, mm-hmm. people have ideas from somewhere, and they come to these texts which are little fragments and all over the place, and and they kind of project those ideas onto the text. Mm-hmm. And so what I ended up doing in this book It ended up being kind of a how-to guide. Okay. Here's how you read someone like this. Okay. Um, And my classroom experience, because I have worked through the material in classes, Uh is it's orientation. And once you have the orientation, you can kind of read it for yourself. Okay. Um, And find your way to things that maybe I don't, you know, discuss or, and make sense of them and things come together.
1: Okay. So how were, let's see, I'm trying to think of the the first question I want to ask um. why did he write in all of these different fragmented styles? And was it just, did he write in the fragmented styles just later in life when maybe he was suffering from an illness? Or even before his illness, was he writing in these fragmented styles?
0: Mm. Um, well, let me address that last part of the question okay. first, and then I'll give two answers to the okay. first part, which will sound like they're incompatible, and I think that is interesting, actually. Um so um earlier on, people kind of describe these writings as middle period. Okay. Um, Nietzsche wrote in fairly fragmentary form, but he was working in a tradition of people like uh, uh right? People who would write books of maxims. Okay. So it's actually quite controlled, um and uh even though it does come in little bite-sized chunks. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, well, let's see, I think I can Nietzsche addresses the question of why there's so much stylistic variation,, okay. and I th- can find the passage for you. Give okay. me a moment. okay. Yeah, here it is. So, um Nietzsche's autobiography, the last book he wrote, is okay. Ecke Homo. and um the chapter in this book is called why I write such good books. (laughs) And this is the beginning of section four of that chapter. He says, this is also the point for a general remark about my art of style. To communicate a state, an inward tension of pathos by means of signs, including the tempo of these signs, that's the meaning of every style. And considering that the multiplicity of inward states is exceptionally large in my case... I have many stylistic possibilities, the most multifarious art of style that has ever been at the disposal of one man. Um, Here's what Nietzsche is telling you in this passage. Remember, he's out of control. He's discombobulated. Mm -hmm. He's all over the place. Uh He ricochets from one state of himself to the next at the end of his life when he's writing this book, almost from moment to moment. The styles the stylistic variation because he can't help it. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so that's one answer. Okay. But here's a different answer. Um, in the later period, the books I'm, I'm mostly discussing in there, the, mm-hmm. um, each of these books is a very contrived artificial exercise. Um, here's a way to think about you know, initial directions for reading one of these books. Okay. They're all positioning themselves in some literary tradition or literary genre. Okay. So the first question you ask is, okay, what genre is this book supposed to be in? And there'll be an answer that's given to you right then. Um, and then you're supposed to ask, okay, what kind of person is supposed to write books in this genre? And again, you'll be given the answer right then. And that will take you to the main or one of the main philosophical points the book is making right there. Now... And so each book is written in a different style, in the mm-hmm. style of that genre. So, for example, Zarathustra, which is which is probably one of the it's probably the most uh, widely known uh, of Nietzsche's books to the general public. Okay. Um, you ask, uh, what genre is this in? It's obviously holy scripture. It's a prophet, a book of prophecy uh, from a non-existent religion. So a parody of some kind, right? Okay. Um, and sure enough, when you open it up, it kind of reads like it's riffing on, you know, maybe it's the Old Testament, maybe it's the New Testament, right? That's one style. And now I said these answers were going to be incompatible. The first answer was mm-hmm. the st- the, all the different styles are because Nietzsche's out of control and he can't help it. Right. And the other answer is, well, it's this exercise that of imitating other genres that requires an enormous amount of control. How mm-hmm. can those both be true? Right, right. Okay. So here's why I think it's interesting to have both of those in the same place. Okay. Um, we know how to read people who write very controlled work. We know how to read, pe- understand people who are controlled. Mm-hmm. And we think if there's no control, you can't get stuff done. Mm-hmm. Um, Nietzsche's an occasion to think about How can it be that somebody who is that out of control is able to produce the collected works of Friedrich Nietzsche? Mm -hmm. Um, And um, that we just assume it can't be both ways Mm -hmm. is telling us what it is we need to understand.
1: Wow. So he's writing in all these different forms and all these different styles. So who was the Nietzsche? Who was writing each of these styles? Was he kind of taking on a different idea, persona? Was he kind of a different person? Each of these styles?
0: Okay. Once again, I think I need to give you two different answers. Okay. <laughs> Maybe this will, will be okay. the, how this conversation will just go <laughs> okay. two answers for everything. Um, okay. So there's this psychiatric answer. Okay. Um. okay Uh, sometimes philosophers who read Aristotle will talk about the form and the matter okay. so in Nietzsche there's l- later Nietzsche right there's think of it as the matter he's got ideas and they're pretty much it's not that he doesn't invent new ideas but they're pretty much constant and he's got arguments and there's different variations on them and he's got right that's the matter mm-hmm. Um. and then as he sort of collapses psychiatrically from one plateau to the next, Mm -hmm. um, the configuration, the form changes. It's like a new personality is organized out of the same stuff. Um, Sometimes the personality is dominated by, I'll kind of talk in terms of the way he thinks of it, Mm -hmm. which maybe we wouldn't fully accept, but there's a single drive which is controlling it all. Um, Sometimes there are a handful of drives, which are having, you know, they're fighting over the the, the, the steering wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes he's so far gone that there's not even that much organization. Um, um, so what you're seeing is, with the exception of Zarathustra, for which there's a different, somewhat different story, mm-hmm. a series of versions of Nietzsche, mm-hmm. each of which is the state he collapses into, and then each of which is trying to manage um manage his disintegrating life mm-hmm. by philosophical invention. Part of that philosophical okay. invention is crafting a personality, which mm-hmm. is the shape. He tells himself stories about who he is. Okay. Um, and he presents these persona that he's uh-huh. coming up with as the authors of these books. So he sh- in each of these books, he's showing you a new version of himself. Okay. And of course, at the very last one, he's so disintegrated that you're pretty sure there couldn't be another one. And sure enough, um, as I'm sure some of the some of the listeners know, Mm -hmm. he spent about the last decade of his life. It wasn't exactly all in a coma, but he might as well have been in a coma. Okay. Um, So uh, that's one answer. Okay. Um, Here's the other answer. Okay. There's if you think about it, there are two traditions in philosophy that go back a very long way, um, which are distinguished by what they think the product of philosophizing is. So I was raised in one tradition, which is the dominant tradition today, okay. which goes all the way back to Plato mm-hmm. in which what philosophizing produces is philosophical theories, you know, uh, opinions about subject matter. That's philosophical in one mm-hmm. way or another. Mm-hmm. um, um and then there's the other tradition, which goes back even one generation further mm-hmm. to Socrates, okay, so I taught some Plato this semester. Mm-hmm. You read The Republic or whatever. Here's somebody laying out a theory, okay You go back to the early Platonic dialogues, which people tend to think represent Socrates as he pretty much was, okay um Socrates talks to people, he argues with them about questions like, what's this virtue or that virtue? What's friendship? What's beauty? But they never resolve those questions. There's never an answer. Oh, okay. The product of philosophizing is Socrates. And that tradition kind of continues. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a complicated story about the Hellenistic period, which isn't my space, so I'll, anybody who wants that, I'll send them off to Martha Nussbaum. Okay. Um, but Montaigne is like this. Montaigne's essays present himself um, and his writing his way, his presentation of himself is a way of changing who he is, of, of reworking himself. Um, and uh, they'll, there's a book that's almost done. It's on the way out the door soon, I think, about this okay. by Lanier Anderson at Stanford, which I think will be really good. Um And then there's Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. Kierkegaard, I think, is one of these people. Um, You can argue about whether Wittgenstein was one of these people. Mm -hmm. Um, So, when the product of philosophizing is the person, of course, there's going to be either a presentation of one person or, in these books that Nietzsche wrote, a series of here's me, here's me again, here's me again, um, because that's what he's, that's the output.
1: So in all of these different forms and philosophies and everything he's discussing, are there any sort of connecting threads that go through each of his writings or are they completely fragmented and different?
0: So um, what I was calling the matter, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of um, continuity in the matter. Okay, This is why. Uh, philosophers who are not me, who okay. work on Nietzsche, will try to tell you what Nietzsche thought. There's a book out there called "What Nietzsche Really Said," right? oh, okay? Because they think you can say that, mm-hmm. right? And what lets them think that mm-hmm. is, you know, the ideas come up again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that kind of continuity, mm-hmm. but they're all rearranged, and they're okay. Each time the personality Nietzsche's personality gets reconfigured, right? It gives them a new perspective. Perspective is actually a technical term for Nietzsche. Okay. people have heard that he's a perspectivist, right? Okay. Um he sees these ideas from a different angle as it were. And so, although there's a lot of continuity, um one version of him, him will see something that the other one didn't notice mm-hmm. and cor- is critical and correct um mm-hmm. something that the other one overlooked. Mm-hmm. And um so although there's a lot of continuity, it's not as though there's one coherent View which is Nietzsche's theory of this Mm -hmm. or that. Mm -hmm.
1: So would you, like a person who's not familiar with Nietzsche, could they read one of his writings, not knowing that it's by him, Mm -hmm. and then read another one of his writings, not knowing again that it's by him, and see that they're written by the same person? Or would they just think, these are two completely different philosophers?
0: Sometimes it's clear that there's overlap and it's the same person. But I'll give you... Um, an indicator of how, I mean, okay. So there's a book which remarkably is still sold in bookstores okay. um, called My Sister and I. This book purports to be by Nietzsche. Um, it's about a third uh, anti-Semitic rantings, okay. about a third... I guess this must have been what pornography was like in the late 19th century or turn of the 20th century. And about a third of it is announcements that sort of sound like this... Today I talked to my sister Elizabeth, who is the only one who truly understands me. Okay. This was accepted as one of Nietzsche's genuine writings yeah. until I think sometime in the 50s or 60s when Walter Kaufman showed it was a forgery.
1: Okay.
0: Um, that people could read Nietzsche's books and then read this, which to my eyes looks nothing oh, like anything he right. would have written, mm-hmm. and just said, oh yeah, that's another thing by him. Oh, um, it's hard for people to see the sort of connecting style
1: wow so he has in his writings since they're so fragmented and so different do his philosophies because he's writing about a lot of different things do his philosophies align with his own belief system at the time and are his belief systems changing or are these not necessarily his own personal belief systems
0: Okay, let me. Uh, I'll answer that question, not quite as you asked it. Okay. So, if you have somebody who um, is so discombobulated, so fragmented that there's no answer to what does he believe, um, he doesn't. He's not going to have a belief system. Okay. Um, but now, going back to something uh, I was mentioning um, a lap or two back. Um, suppose okay, there are these two traditions in philosophy. Mm-hmm. If you're in the theoretical tradition, well, your life might not have a lot to do with your theories mm-hmm. uh, because the theories don't have anything to do with your with life. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, um, even if they do. Mm-hmm. It's surprising how often you encounter philosophers, moral philosophers. I won't name any names. Okay. But they have views about what's good and what you should do. And then you look at how they live and you go, seriously? This person who said this is doing that? Okay. Okay. Um, for the theory people, if the life lines up with the ideas, with the views, it's just a coincidence. Okay. But now in this other tradition, what you're trying to do is create a person, a persona who is yourself. Okay. Okay. Um, The beliefs, the belief system, if there's a system, but other, if there's less than a system, then, right, the ideas or whatever, um, they're not something outside, they're part of the life. Mm -hmm. So, of course, they're crafted as or shaped as part of the life. Mm -hmm. Now, in Nietzsche's case, that's a little bit overstated Mm -hmm. um, because... He doesn't have enough control to craft his life the way that some of people in this tradition do. Rather, mm-hmm. he's managing the disintegration of his life, which is okay. maybe a a less you know. It's uh, right, uh, um, and and then of course you expect to find that the uh, the views and the ideas and the beliefs they have a home in the life and they matter because they're in this case they're made up, um, they're produced um, as a way of keeping himself. Semi-functional, keeping himself together, getting things done. Hmm. Um, Of course, they're tightly folded into the life.
1: So why do some people characterize or view Nietzsche as dangerous?
0: Maybe I'll give more than two answers to this one.
1: Okay, perfect.
0: Um, Well, there's actually a really interesting answer that I'll mention to get out of the way. Okay. But then there's some interesting answers to that. Okay. Um, The uninteresting answer is that Nietzsche is uh, famous for saying, uh, God is dead. Mm -hmm. So back in the day, late 19th century, the idea that somebody was an atheist was kind of shocking. Mm -hmm. And there was a presumption that if you didn't believe in God, you could, you were probably also an anarchist and maybe badly behaved in other ways. And now we're used to people who don't Mm have a belief in God and we don't find it shocking and whatever, Mm -hmm. right? So... Then there's another historical reason, which is that Nietzsche was appropriated by the Nazis as their philosopher. Oh. And um, when philosophers in the United States, after the Second World War, wanted to start working on Nietzsche, they kind of had to sanitize him and rehabilitate him. And they kind of did it by, uh, you know, you got him off the hook by saying, well, the Nazis misunderstood him, and they misread him, and okay. they mis- misrepresented him, mm-hmm. um, uh, one of the things I do in this book is point out that you can't get Nietzsche off the hook as easily as that. okay. Uh, it's a complicated story, so if people who want it, I'll just send them to okay, the book. Perfect. But now here's another reason that Nietzsche is seen as dangerous, and this is a better reason than mm-hmm. both of those. Um, okay, think about that tradition of philosophy where you create a persona. Mm-hmm. It's normal when people do this kind of successfully and charismatically, right, that they develop groupies. Okay. Um, And um, it never looks good. Mm -hmm. Um, We remember that when Socrates was put to death by the Athenians, the main charge was corrupting the youth. That's how it looked Mm -hmm. to people around. And it doesn't look any better with Nietzsche. So I've taught Nietzsche for many years in classes. And you'd be surprised in how many classes it turned out that there was someone, always a boy, who had decided that he was the overman. Not good, right? So people see this and they think, okay, Nietzsche's a bad influence. Okay. But then, worse than that, there's another reason he's dangerous. Um, One of the really big ideas that Nietzsche has Okay, Nietzsche thinks values have always, in fact, been invented. Right. But they've been invented inadvertently or by people who weren't very thoughtful about it. And it's always been one size fits all. Same values for everyone. Right. Nietzsche thinks, okay, from here on out, you can, in a very self-aware manner, Mm -hmm. produce bespoke, tailored values to suit your own life. And, you know, there are ways that you you can look around and find examples where it comes off looking kind of good. Um, uh, I'll I'll, I'll give you two of them. Um, If you think about Impressionism, the Impressionists made up values that governed painting in their brief tradition, uh, standards that uh, specified what paintings had to be like Mm -hmm. and sort of an ideal they they tried to live up to and a taste that went along with it. Mm -hmm. Or again, Deborah Madison. She is the overman, my hero, right? Okay. This is the founding chef of Greens. It's a restaurant in San Francisco. Okay. <laughs> it's a vegetarian restaurant in Madison, mm-hmm. along with a few other people produced a new cuisine. Mm-hmm. Again, there's, a, there's standards, um, ideals, a taste, things okay. that are, this is Nietzsche's conception of value.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But then people who see that this is what Nietzsche is about, um, they realize and, that Okay, I guess there's a line you hear in Silicon Valley, move fast and break things. Okay. People invent values are liable to move fast and break things. And people think, okay, this is, we, we need to watch out for this. And now there's one more reason I think that Nietzsche has seen is seen as dangerous. Okay. okay. I regularly have to remind myself when I'm doing philosophy that there are two things in philosophy that are the hardest things. The second hardest thing is not to anthropomorphize your fellow man. Okay. And the hardest thing is not to anthropomorphize yourself. Okay. Um, Here's what I mean by that. We have a sort of Saturday morning cartoon version of what a person is. Okay. which is, it's the kind of thing I gestured at a little bit earlier on. There's things that people believe, they really believe those things, mm-hmm. and then there are things they want, they really want those things. And if you want to understand what they're going to do, you ask th- what they believe and what they want, kind of explains what they're what they're doing. Nietzsche's not like that. Okay. He can't pretend that he's like that okay. to himself. And he's trying to figure out how to manage himself when he thinks psychologically about himself this the psychology makes it vivid that no one is really like this, okay. right? Um, and what's there behind the cartoon version of people is not always nice. Mm-hmm. When Nietzsche looks inside himself, he thinks of what's inside himself but mostly his drives, that's the big things. Mm-hmm. These drives are ugly and he's upfront about it. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, in Beyond Good and Evil, mm-hmm. uh, let's see, some of the drives are German nationalism, mm-hmm. Um, anti-Semitism, which he thinks of as a drive, and misogyny, which he thinks of as a drive. Um, so people who encounter Nietzsche, they, they see that he's got a picture of human beings, of humanity, on which people are dangerous. The People are dangerous. But because Nietzsche is the one reminding them of this, they think, okay, Nietzsche's dangerous. Right,
1: I can see that. So for my closing question the cu- question i ask everyone that i interview what do we know now because of your research because of your work on this book that what does the world know now that they didn't know before
0: well let me back off from the world it would be okay. um uh, unrealistic to expect right, that enough right. people are going to read this book for the world to count as knowing anything mm-hmm. from it. Um, but, okay, so Gilbert Ryle was a philosopher who was kind of prominent um, in the early and mid-20th century. He was at Oxford. And um, one of the things he's known for is the distinction between knowing that and knowing how. So if you know that, you know you know various facts or theories or whatever. But knowing how is skills, mm-hmm. right? So things my Uh, I'm going to have a plumber coming over to work on uh, the pipes, Mm -hmm. because he knows how to do stuff that I don't know how to do. Um, So what I hope people are getting out of this book is some knowing how. Um, First of all, this is the lowest key side of it, knowing how to read Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then, uh, knowing how to read Nietzsche is a special case of something I was suggesting we philosophers don't know how to do, how mm-hmm. to understand and make sense of someone who is as much of a disunified agent as discombobulated mm-hmm. as Nietzsche is. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully I'm contributing to that. But then also there's knowing how to um, work up an answer to the question of what your life is about in a way that takes account of how you're put together, of what the mm-hmm. architecture of your own personality is. Mm-hmm. And that's a skill that. Uh, Uh, a talent that would serve people well in their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what I'm after.
1: That was Elijah Milgram, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy. For more information about the University of Utah College of Humanities, please visit humanities.utah.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Humanities Radio.